0: Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. We are in Chapter Four of Creation. We just began last week, so we're actually just working through the first paragraph. And um, let's just pick right back up where we were. All right. So, let me just back up one slide. So, we're talking about this the scope of creation. But now we're moving on to the duration of creation. And, of course, we're just taking little small phrases from paragraph one to just make sure we comprehend those phrases. I mean, this is, this is a pretty simple one. In the space of six days, what does that mean? You would think that would be simple, that we wouldn't have to even talk about this, just move on. In the space of six days, okay, it's six days, right? Let's move on. Not at all. All right. So the confession was written before modern man began concocting theories of earth-dating. So we do not see the modern theories refuted within its text. So as we talked about before, this is at a time when the creation narrative was largely unchallenged. There was no discussion of the earth being millions of years old or billions of years old. There was no discussion of the days of the Bible being longer periods of time than a day. Not in there. Not in the confession. Why? Because it wasn't challenged. It wasn't something they needed to address, or they would have addressed it, obviously. Can we acknowledge that there are churches today that have differing views on this? On whether or not it is six actual literal days or whether or not it is longer, ages of time, periods of time, the day age theory. You might have heard that before, right? All of this is relatively new. So that's why the confession doesn't address it. It just says, in the space of six days. Obviously, what we know is happening today, there's an attempt to create an alter- alternate to an alternative to creation the theory of evolution must rely on extremely long periods of time in an attempt to explain its theory of origin they must discredit the biblical six days of creation why is that why does evolution need long periods of time for man to come about in order to justify its suppositions because There is no way to explain an animal becoming a man. No way to do it. There's no way to explain a rock becoming an animal. Solar rain becoming an animal. And if you don't think that what I'm saying is true, I challenge you to just pick up your phone and go onto the web and Google origin of man, origin of species, origin of creation, And you will find out when you look at evolution that that's exactly what they're saying. They're literally saying that animals came from rocks. That man came from a rock. So how could that possibly be? Well, they have to have extended periods of time. There is no dating system that exists that's foolproof. Every single dating system that they have has been shown over and over again to be inaccurate, to be incorrect. Now, why is that? I feel like I'm really skipping ahead, but that's all right. Why is that, that they are inaccurate? Well, it's because they are based on and dependent on a consistency in atmospheric conditions. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is is that they're dependent, for instance, on carbon existing at the same rate forever since the beginning of the Earth's formation. So in other words, if they can go back and use carbon dating to say how much carbon is in something, then they can say, "Oh, well, carbon is accumulating in something at this rate." So we must go. We know that that then means this existed for this long. If we go back to no carbon. Are you with me on this? Now that has two essential problems that are undeniably a problem. Number one is that it's been consistent. Is that it's been consistent? It hasn't been consistent. New rocks created from volcanoes are measured at millions of years old. You think there's a problem here? Human things have been measured at hundreds of thousands of years old, whether it's bones, whether it's tools, all these things when they use carbon dating. So carbon dating isn't even used hardly anymore. Not hardly, but still, still used and still in all the textbooks. Still taught, still part of the theory. So they use argon gas, they use all kinds of different things. It all has the same first problem, which is that it's based on a continuous and consistent accumulation of that material. Same thing, by the way, with radiation, except the opposite. So that the radioactive, the gamma rays that come off of radioactive sources are leaving at at the same rate forever. Right? So when you hear something, somebody says something's radioactive and it has a half-life of 500,000 years, let's say. Right? Different things have different half-lives. But what's a half-life? Well, that's how, much, how long it'll take until half the amount of radiation is actually gone. Are you with me on this? It's dissipated. Well, the problem is, there's two problems with that. The problem is, is that, well, again, it depends on it being consistently giving off the radiation, which doesn't always happen. There are some things that are radioactive that give it off at a different rate, varying rate. Depends on the atmosphere. Interestingly enough, it changes. The second flaw in all of this is the idea that the earth was not created with age. Are you with me on this? If God had created the earth as new, as new. That would mean that the plants are seeds. What could the animals have eaten? It's a problem, isn't it? Would the ground have everything in it that it needs? To, if you take dirt, let's say dirt, what is dirt? I mean, now some people get some farmers here, so they may come up with some different <laughs> answers for this. But what is at its core? I'm not talking about the things that are in the dirt. I'm talking about what is dirt in its core. It is a mineral. It's a mineral. Now, it depends on the kind of dirt, right, to make it up. Like clay, for instance, is not just clay. There's no periodic element for clay. It doesn't exist. There are different elements that actually come together to make up clay. All right? Now, you can say sand, that's silicone, silicone, right, I mean silica, and that is actually on the periodic chart. That does exist. But... My point is this. Forget about that. The point is this, is that in dirt, where you're going to grow plants, you need other things. Can you just have a mineral and expect plants to grow? You can't. In fact, if you're watching the farm fields around here, you see that you know pretty often, farmers will do a huge dump of lime that they then spread out on the field. Why is that? Doug, why is that? Raise the pH level, because the dirt is not good enough as it is. Now, it dissipates. Things grow uses up some of the materials in the dirt, and so they have to add things to it. The point is this. If it's brand new, mineral, powder, plants won't grow. Plants won't grow. They have to have some other nourishment for them to grow. God had to create the earth formed. It says he made the trees. Let me ask you this. How long does it take for light from a star to get here? According to science, quote-unquote, today. How long does it take? How about the farthest star that we can reach? They say billions of years. Now, what's interesting is is that they don't seem to be seeing new stars appear. They actually are just able to get a better resolution on the existing stars, which wouldn't you think that we'd be starting to see farther stars? Like, why does the light stop? That's because there are no new stars forming. any rate understand this, right? So does God say that he created the stars? It does. The Bible does say this. So that means that he created the stars with their light waves already at earth. Why? Well, because we still wouldn't see any. Does this make sense? See, the assumption that Well, if God created the earth, it had to be new. So therefore, if anything is dated older than what the Bible narrative is, which is about 60, 60, 800 years now, if it's older than that, then it can't be real. It doesn't make any sense. God didn't create a fetus. He created man, grown, thinking, walking, talking, able to comprehend and reason. You with me on this? In other words, Taking that as the as evolutionist idea that, well, evolution has to be true, creation cannot be true, because we date things at an old rate, it makes no sense whatsoever. You're going to have to have more evidence than that. But this is what evolution does. Evolution takes long, long periods of time to try to explain how these things could have changed. Have they ever witnessed a change of one species to another? No. Is there any evidence? Is there any Fossil evidence? None. None. There is no evidence of a species changing to another species. Now, Darwin's problem was, in his origin of the species, was that he identified what is called in science microevolution and took that idea and applied it to everything. What's microevolution? Which, by the way, we would probably more accurately say adaptive evolution. At the Galapagos Island, he saw birds with beaks that were different. Why were they different? Well, because of the way that they survived, they had to use them in a different way. So the birds adapted. Have you ever seen that there is a difference between different kinds of dogs? And how they actually do what they are made to do. Like you never see a you know a huge dog super fast. Why? Well, because that's not what they're made to do, right? They're not they're not they're not made to do that, so they don't do that. Now, can a dog a large dog become fast? It can, but it takes some time, and it probably would not develop different muscles and different muscles and body style until there was some time. You with me on this? Until there was some time. Darwin saw this and said, Well, if they can adapt their beaks, then here's his conclusion man came from a monkey. Now you say, Well, that doesn't even make any sense. You've never read Origin of the Species. If you think that (laughs) Origin of the Species is not a very good book. And people that say, oh, this is Darwin's work, it's so, it changed me, it's so... Well, there's some ideas and concepts that he goes. He goes, because he's trying to get people to think critically, except he's giving them false information. So the idea of thinking critically is a good one. The Bible teaches that. We teach that. It's a good thing for people to think about what is going on and what they see and what they witness, instead of just going along with what anybody else says. The problem is... Where's your source of ultimate truth? Because everybody has one. Everybody believes something ultimately is true or false. Everybody does. You do. What is that basis? Where does it come from? If it's you, problematic. Why? I don't know if you ever noticed, sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're wrong. So are you wrong on something? Is there such thing as aliens? Aliens? (laughs) <laughs> we went down this not too long ago, didn't we? <laughs> what is an alien? That's good. There are aliens from Mexico who are coming in illegally to our country, from Guatemala mainly, coming in illegally to our country. Are those aliens real? Yes, they are. <laughs> but extraterrestrials? Are there extraterrestrials? Are there beings that are from outside of our Earth? You better say yes. Angels. 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 Oh, you forgot about angels. You did, didn't you? You forgot about angels. The point is this: is that if you just said no, there's no such thing as extraterrestrials, and then I just said angels, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. You're wrong. You're wrong. Is there such thing as whatever you name it? Things that you don't suspect, Loch Nessie, the Loch Ness monster. Does she exist? Bigfoot. Is that possible? you want to be honest? You don't know. He saw a picture. So it's probably true. You don't know for sure. Right? True? we don't know for sure. If they emptied out Loch Ness completely, which they could, couldn't do. But if they did. And then they went through all the caves that are under all the mountains around that come up from under the water. And they checked them all. Then we would know. <laughs> then we would know. Until then we don't know. You have a feeling. You think you know what you know. You you want to believe what you want to believe, but it's not based on is this something that's the scripture? No. So should we worry about it? No. We shouldn't worry about that. But Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are very clear and explicit explanation of the creation of the earth. This is not left to our imagination. Did it have to be created in the Bible? It did not. Did it have to be shown in the scripture? Could, he, could not the scripture have started with, in the beginning, God told Adam. Could it? Sure it could have. Right? Could it have just started with them outside of the Garden of Eden? Fallen. Could have. Is there a whole bunch of stuff in there that we would have missed, that we couldn't use, that we wouldn't understand, that would not explain things as well? Yes, there is. So God gave us this. And part of that narrative is in the space of six days. It's in the space of six days. So what does that mean? Six days. Six days. This desire to discredit the biblical six days of creation due to the reprobate's desire to have a a rationalistic explanation for everything instead of a spiritual explanation. They want to be able to explain it away so that they don't have to worry about it. Why do we say that? Because the Bible says this. That's why we, we know that this is the case. What do we mean by that? We mean that people want to be able to explain it so that they don't have to accept that they can't explain it. Are you with me on this? They have to have a theory of evolution in order to say there's no God and I'm not accountable to God and I don't have to worry about what I do is right or wrong and I don't have to worry about if there's some higher standard that I should be held to. If I can ignore all that, I can do whatever I want to. Believers must acknowledge God as the creator of the universe, yet some seek to blend the theories of the age of the earth with God using evolution to create the earth. Though so this is the day-age theory. But God did not need billions of years. He did not need six days. He did not need six minutes. He is God. Everything that we see in the six days of creation could have been created in an instant. Done. Everything created. Everything created. They say, well, that's a lot. <laughs> He's God. If he couldn't do that, is he God? You know, we skipped this one little part. Like when you read through it, we read through it last week, right? We read through the creation narrative. When you read through that, you know, there's this one little part you think about, okay, wow, he created all the plants, the trees, everything, the grass in a day. It's a day, did the whole What else did he do that day, by the way? The animals, animals, same day. Whoa, that's a lot. Did you ever really think about the fact that he created the universe in a day? All of the stars, the suns, the phenomena, planets, moons, asteroids, comets, all created in a day. Arguably more to do than the plants and the animals. God doesn't need the time. He didn't need the time. There would be no explanation that's valid to say why God would need millions of years to create the earth. Except if he wasn't God. So this people that try to blend these two things, all they're doing is they're accepting some of evolution and saying, well, I must accept what they're saying and find a fault with the scripture, so I'll try to make the scripture fit. Well, as you're going to see, it doesn't fit. The scriptural evidence for a literal six days of creation is overwhelming and conclusive. The Genesis 1 account of the evening and the morning, quote, the evening and the morning were the first day, unquote, etc. all, of course, it does this for every day, are a reflection of a single literal day, not a period of time. If the Bible just said a day, there's a, there's a problem. It doesn't just say a day. It identifies the beginning and the end of the day, the evening and the morning. Notice, the Hebrew word for the day used here is yameh, and it can mean both a 24-hour period or a period of time. It can mean a 24-hour period or a period of time. Every place it is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, it has other words to clarify which definition applies. In other words, does this mean a day, or does it mean a period of time? Well, there's other words to clarify this. this is, you know, we, don't, we don't think about this, but this is true in our language, too. Certainly true in Hebrew. There's a word that can mean other things, and so they use other words to help clarify what they mean. In Genesis, it has the evening and the morning to denote a 24-hour period. So the Hebrew word for a day is a day or a period of time. It's a period of time. So what do they do in Genesis chapter 1 to identify what that period of time it is? They add in the evening and the morning. That's what. That's really unarguable. It's unarguable. But let's keep going. If there were periods of time instead of literal days, there are huge problems with creation actually surviving. Because all plant life was created on day three while the sun was not created until day four what do plants need to live sunlight the sun wasn't created until day four a sun to light the day the moon to light the night that's what was created in day four if there was any period of time between day three and day four the plants would have died they wouldn't lived. Even perfectly created plants. Now, by the way, the day-age theory, depending on whose day-age theory you listen to, is either thousands of years or millions of years between the days. Both are a problem. Both don't work with the days of creation. Both don't work with the Hebrew wording. Doesn't work. Which, by the way, it also doesn't work with evolution. Because evolution says that the origins of the earth and the history of the earth are far, far longer than that. Other references in scripture reflect the literal sixth day of creation, including, and let's look at, I'll read these passages to you. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Does anybody recognize what this passage is? It's the Ten Commandments. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day. Okay, let me ask you a question. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Are we talking about millions of years? Are we talking about thousands of years? It sounds like we're talking about days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger which is within that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Exodus 20 is reiterating the fact that this was one week. It was seven days. It was not extended periods of time. If you believe in the day-age theory, you have a problem with Exodus 20. Is there any question that God meant the seven-day week? Was there any question to the Israelites? Was there any question to Christ? None. None. Exodus thirty-one, thirteen to 17 Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that ye may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. Is there any question about what God means here? Is there any question about how serious he is about having seven days? You can say, oh, well, that's part of the ceremonial law. Oh, I didn't read the last verse. It is the sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The point is, God's example is, work six days, don't work the seventh day. The seventh day rest. God's example. God's example. It wasn't the children of Israel's example. It was God's example. God rested the seventh day. God did not work six days. Why? Did God need to rest? He did not need to rest. He rested as an example to us. Why do you think that is? Well, the scriptures actually tell us it's so that man doesn't doesn't worship work. Because man needs to be refreshed. Man needs rest. I mentioned it last week. There's been, I should get some few quotes from some of these to put into this part because it'd be really, it'd be good. But there's numerous experiments with changing the work week. What if we make it an eight day week? What if I make it a 10 day week? What if I make it a 12 day week? There's been a lot of discussions and some experimentation that they have done with how people would react mentally, physically you know, in their actual biology, what would happen if we made it a longer work period? So they put people under these tests where they go through this period and they actually, I mean, I remember one of the tests was it was in one of those, um, it was like the bubble, you know, one of those things where they actually had a, uh, people that were separated, you know, where they're not around other people. Because you can imagine that if you try to do that, well, you would, everybody else would be like, on a weekend, you wouldn't, right? So you would kind of know. So people that they had actually isolated, they tested it. And what they found out was, was that when they did anything other than seven days, people biologically had problems. They got sick. Because you're designed to work on a seven-day week. God made you that way, and he set the example in creation. The greatest work we see from God, creation, he did the same thing to show us. Rested, seventh day. Christ referenced Genesis, but not specifically the six days. However, he did validate Genesis and Moses' writings as historically accurate. Where do we see that? Mark ten six. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. By the way, you want to argue about different genders and binary people and all those things? Sorry. Christ says it. God did it. From the beginning, God created them male and female. There is no other chromosomes. It's male and female, that's it. Doesn't matter what pronouns you want to use. You're either male or female. That's it. It doesn't even matter if you have the surgeries. You're still male or female. That's it. Your chromosomes don't change. You can't change it. Science can't do that. Surprise. Sorry. Very politically incorrect. Mark thirteen nineteen. For in those days shall be uh, shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. This is again Christ speaking pointing out the fact that God created, is referencing, of course, creation narrative. Where is that? Genesis. Luke eleven fifty 50 to 51, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished before, between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. What is he talking about? The blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias. Were there anybody that died after Zacharias until his time, of course. There was this period of silence, right? There was a period where no scriptures were written for a long period. Did people die during that? Of course they did. What is he talking about? He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. The first person to die in the Old Testament is Abel. killing I'm sorry. Abel, killed by Cain. First blood. Last blood, Zacharias. Now you say, well, yeah, I turned to Malachi. That's the last person that died in my Bible. You don't have a Hebrew Bible. In a Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book. At 2 Chronicles, the last person that can be killed is Zechariah. Christ is actually referencing here the entirety of the Old Testament. Again, he doesn't start after the book of Moses. He doesn't start with 1 Kings, he doesn't start with 1 Chronicles. He starts with the writings of Moses, Genesis. John 5, 45-47, Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father... There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Who is he using to convict these people about what they believe? Moses. Going back to Moses. Again, authenticating Moses. Matthew twenty four thirty eight to 39. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What is he referring to? Before the flood, right? When the flood hits, when Noah goes into the ark. Where is that found? Chronicles? No, Genesis. Genesis. Again, Christ is verifying the validity of Genesis. All right. Moving on. The result of creation. The result of of creation. Notice that the confession ends this paragraph with, and all very good. During the first five days of creation, we see God looking at his creation and saying that it was good. But when creation was complete, he called it very good. He called it very good at the completion of creation. Everything God does is perfect, and observing his completed creation... God himself calls his finished work very good. We cannot redefine that creation as flawed, insufficient, or in any way less than God's own claim. Now, why do we say this? Why do we say this? Because this is one of the problems with the day-age theory, or the idea that the creation account is actually God's second time, or that he took what existed before and made it new. These are some of the arguments. Well, okay, the Bible could be real, but the earth actually evolved before that, and then when God came in to do the creation account, he destroyed everything that was on the earth. That's why we find all the fossils. There's so many flaws in that statement that don't make any logical sense, and there's no scientific evidence for that. But the problem is, is that why would God call it very good when it was perfect creation before the fall if it was not very good? Was there death before? Was there creatures that were being killed before? No, there wasn't. But some will have to go to that because they can't explain the millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years that they need to try to explain evolution. By the way, really simple deal. I don't know if Kent Hovind says this or others, but it does, absolutely makes sense. So the idea that if you give enough time, anything can happen like that, Here would be a question. Is it possible that you could put a tornado in a junkyard, and that tornado, if it kept going over time, would create a complete Boeing 747? Is it possible that through this massive destruction, given enough time, that it would just put together a 747, which, by the way, is way less complicated than simple animals? not alone humans. Humans are way more complex. Is it possible that that could happen? Evolutionists would have to say yes. They'd have to say yes. Because they're wanting you to believe more than that, far more than that, that it just happened. This reflects that God cares about his creation and that God only creates what is good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. God cares. This is another rejection of evolution, the theory that millions of years existed, existence preceded man. With all the violent death and struggles of one species becoming another species, if that had occurred before man existed, the sixth day, could God have called it very good? See, all of this stuff that evolutionists say is violent. It's not just like something eased into another creature. Oh, no. No. They know it had to be violent. Like that, these changes would be violent to any species. It just didn't, it never happened. They don't have any proof that it ever did happen. Never seen one. Since sin has entered into the word creation of uh, the world, creation is tainted. And although created very good, it now includes evil and corruption. Of course, right? So we did see a change, Genesis one thirty one. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So at the sixth day, before he rested, God saw everything he created said it was very good. Right. Paragraph 2, the pinnacle of creation. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, Rendering them fit unto the life to, go, for God, to God for which they were create, being created. I'm sorry, were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. All right, so this is kind of a summary of man, what man is, how he was created. So. Fortunately, we're going to break that down a little bit to get into that a little bit more. All right. So obviously the paragraph begins with, after God hath made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls. God made man after all other creatures so that he would rule over them. We'll see this. God made man after all other creatures so he would rule over them. God created each gender differently and blessed them uniquely. Each has their own role, but no one gender is better than the other. God made them both in his image. To deny the distinct way God made each gender is to deny his blessings. We don't even have to get into all the discussions about this, although the world, of course, is consumed with discussions about this today. There is a difference in genders. And I'm not just talking about the physical differences. There are differences. Now, do some women have some more masculine tendencies? Do some men have some more feminine tendencies that we would say feminine tendencies or masculine tendencies? You could say yes. Although, you also see that many times those exhibit themselves situationally. A woman's on her own. She not have a partner. She kind of has to stand up and do her own thing. Yes? Is she going to exhibit some masculine tendencies when that happens? Yes? A man has to care for someone. He's going to exhibit something that's foreign to him, that he doesn't normally do. He's going to be nurturing. He should be. That's not something he's normally built to do very well. In fact, all the women in here could probably say a hearty amen, if they're honest, that your husband is not as nurturing as you would like him to be. It's not just it's not built that way. He's built to provide for you. To defend you. To work. To produce. He should nurture you. The Bible teaches us that we should be doing this. We just don't do it very well. It's a masculine tendency. Is that a bad thing? Who did God give the job? To tend the garden to? Adam. Adam. When we see the curse the curse that God gives to man because of the first sin. Kind of two things, isn't it? Besides death. Two things. It's going to be hard to work. It's going to be hard to have children. Do you think that God meant when he said it's going to be hard to bear children, there'll be pain in childbirth, that he meant just the actual pain in childbirth? Like when Eve was going to have her first baby, it wouldn't actually have hurt? It's possible. But do you think that maybe... He means the whole child-rearing. Is there anybody that had no pain in child-rearing? Had the perfect child. (laughs) i look right here. They're like, ah, no. Pain. Pain. God made the genders differently on purpose. They complement each other. They complement each other. And even in a marital relationship, you'll frequently see, because this is the way that it works, God's built this into us, that couples will get together who have complementary strengths. Not the same strengths. Complementary strengths. If they have the same strengths, usually that ends up with this. Butting heads fighting divorce. God made them different, on purpose, on purpose. Reasonable means the ability to reason or think. Notice we said here, he created male and female with reasonable and immortal souls. Reason means the ability to reason or to think. Man has been made with an immortal soul. Once created, it never ceases to exist. It is immortal. It didn't exist for all of time. You don't have the spark of God in you. you. didn't. Your soul didn't exist since the beginning of creation. Your soul came to being when the egg was fertilized. And at that point, now that's a soul. And that soul lives forever. The body? No. The soul? Yes. This distinctly contradicts the doctrine of annihilationism. The idea that all souls... If there were such a thing, I'm describing to you the doctrine of annihilation. All souls, if there were such a thing, cease to exist at death. This is embraced by some who claim that God's judgment on the reprobate sinner is not eternal, but is instead a judgment of annihilation. Scripture clearly teaches there is an eternal judgment. So you understand what they're saying. In other words, what they will say is is that, oh, well, well, God wouldn't be that cruel. Why would he punish someone for eternity? He'll just make them cease to exist. He'll just make them cease to exist. This is called nihilism. So let's look at a few scriptures. Genesis 127. So these are all footnotes to all this point. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of light, and man became a living soul. So when did Adam first become a living soul? When God formed him and breathed into him the breath of life. John 10, 27 to 28 My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So here's a point that Annihilationism, depending on who you, which, what flavor of that you subscribe to, would also teach that there is no soul, and that man all, when you die, you cease to exist. No soul. Well, this clearly contradicts that. Because Christ specifically says that he gives unto them eternal life. Eternal life. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, and I saw a great white throne. Were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, we could keep going on with that passage, but the point is this is that you see that when people die, they are not just ceasing to exist. They, in fact, appear before God to be judged. And some of them are in hell. And they then make an appearance before what we call the great white throne of judgment. To be judged, they didn't cease to exist. Paragraph two continues, rendering them fit unto that li- unto that life to which for God to God for which they were created. Let me start that again because I screwed that up twice. Rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Well. You can kind of, This is pretty basic here, but you kind of see that man was equipped or fit for the life God created him for in the garden. He was equipped to do this. This was accomplished by his being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So you say, well, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it's actually in knowledge, in righteousness, and true holiness. That's what you are made in the image of. You're made in the image of God in this way. How does that work out? Are you truly holy? No. You're fallen. You're in sin. But man was created in God's image in these ways. Man was created with the knowledge that he needed. He was not omniscient as God, but reflected God's image with his knowledge. Right? He wasn't equal to God in knowledge, but he was given a great deal of knowledge. Think about this. Do we see any evidence in Scripture whatsoever that God had to teach man to breathe? To walk, to talk, to identify different kinds of animals, to come up with different sounds so that he could name the animals? Think about that. There was no phonics classes for Adam. He already had the knowledge. Man was created in perfect righteousness. This is called the original state of righteousness. And obviously, before he fell, he was righteous. Man was created in true holiness and practiced that holiness in word and deed. Before the fall, they were truly and perfectly holy until sin. Let's read a few passages. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Lo, this only have I found that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God started by making man right, but man went the wrong way. Genesis 1.26, and God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Who has dominion over every creature? Man. Man. When, when he says, after our likeness, what's this one? key phrase? You think it meant that Adam looked just like God? No. No. Does God actually have a body like us? No. Well, Christ does now, doesn't he? Christ does. Did Christ look just like Adam? Doubtful. Why? He was still born of Mary, right? Still born of Mary. Does every child look, does any child look exactly like their parent? No. Some look really close, right? Not exactly. Let's not be confused about after our likeness. There's more to it than that. Colossians 3.10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. So when someone is saved, they put on the new man, renewed in the knowledge, after the image of him that created him. So who was created in God's image? Man. And when you become saved, you're renewed in that. And then you still have the human nature. So what happens? You sin. Ephesians 4.24. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So now we don't see just renewed in knowledge. We see, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So the true man of God is created like Adam was in righteousness and true holiness. And that's our goal, is to get to that. That's full sanctification, which will happen when? In 2024? Maybe. When you die, or when Christ returns. Okay. The integrity of man. This is the end of the paragraph. Having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, and yet under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So then you have to ask this basic question. You can see that this says here, but this is a bigger question for us, and I think we actually might have brought this up last week. What basis is something holy or righteous? Like, What determines if something is holy or if it's righteous? There is a standard or a law that must be applied. God's law is the only true measure of holiness and righteousness. So if someone says, well, that's righteous or that's holy or whatever, where is the true standard for that? God's word. That's the only standard. Everything else is us making it up. You understand? Maybe. You're not really so sure. (laughs) I can see some of your faces. You're not so sure. All right. So you should just readily admit that this is true. But what this really reflects is the reality that we often try to make things holy or righteous in our own minds. And we can't do that. We can't do that. So you could say, well, I think it's holy if I do this during the worship service or I don't do this during the worship service. Is there a standard? God's word. Now you say, well, I think I can figure that one out. I'm I've paid attention. <laughs> Been to church before. Okay. So is it righteous or unrighteous to chew gum in church? Depends on what your church says. <laughs> Lauren says. Okay, the reality is, is neither. It's not addressed in the scripture. This is not addressed in the scripture. So, you cannot say with any certainty this is righteous or holy or not righteous or not holy. Now, I don't think anybody would necessarily argue that that's holy and righteous that you've got my church. But I'm saying that I've been at churches that have this rule You cannot chew gum in church because that is disrespecting God. Where do you get that? That's a fine line right there. Because it's really easy to cross over that line, isn't it? There's a lot of things about blowing your nose. Is that unholy? You see what I mean? It's ridiculous. There's only one standard. It's God's word. Anything else is a suggestion. What's our bulletin say? about how to behave during the service. Does our bulletin say this? Our bulletin says that. What's it say? It says, don't distract others. It says, don't come in and out of the service on a regular basis because you distract others. It says, please don't chew gum. Bring food or beverages into the auditorium, into the sanctuary. It says these things. But you know what, if you read what it says, it's always asking, please, please. Here's why. We're not saying, this is God's rules. Here's where it is in the scripture. Can't you gum. Not there. Why? Because God didn't think it was important enough to put it there. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't come up with ideas and say, We're going to make that holy or unholy now. The only measurement, the only standard is God. It's his word. That's it. How do we know what God thinks? We only know from his word. Does God speak to those issues? You have to be very convoluted to say that he does. Very convoluted to say that he does. Are there other things that God speaks to in his word about this? There are. Yep, there are different aspects of worship that we see. There's different aspects of righteousness that we see that God applies and that you can't do. It's okay to do otherwise, but you can't do it when you're worshiping. Right? Do you think God cares? (laughs) Ask Aaron's sons if he cares. Struck them dead because they did something they thought was holy. They added strange incense before the whole nation. God struck them dead on the spot. What's Aaron get told? Does anybody remember? What's Moses say to Aaron? What? Don't weep over them. He just struck dead in front of him. Don't weep for them. Violated God's law. God's law, his moral law, was written on man's heart. It was ingrained, so to speak, into man's consciousness. According to the scriptures, this was true for men after the fall as well. We see this in the scripture. It's not just true during creation, it's true after that. The scriptures tell us clearly that men have God's law on their heart, therefore they are accountable to that law. Man has the ability to fulfill the law of God written in their hearts. God's creation was very good. The possibility of failure was present due to man's free will. God would not have to command them to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil if they had no ability to make that decision. Does that make sense? If man did not have the ability to choose to eat from that, he wouldn't have had to say, don't eat from that. They just wouldn't be able to. They had to have some ability. God decreed that man would fall, but man of his and her own violation committed the sin. God does not tempt man. Let's read these verses before we finish for this paragraph. Romans two, fourteen to fifteen, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. What is he saying? He's saying even the Gentiles, who are not taught the law, like you, the Israelites, are taught the law. When the Gentiles are taught the law, they follow the law of themselves, because that's just what they know is right or wrong. But then he goes on to say that their conscience bears witness. And they accuse each other when they do things that are wrong. They accuse each other. Genesis 3.6, And when the woman saw the tree, was good for food. And then it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Of course, you recognize this narrative. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. You have the truth, and yet you're unrighteous. Then verse 32, same chapter. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Man knows when he sins that he's sinning. He knows that God will look poorly on this and will judge him. Does it anyway. That's what that verse says. Does it anyway. James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I have tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any. directly says it not much not much question there let's close today's class in a word of prayer